Cruzy. Sleepy. Melancholy. Hello, my name is Nicholas de Villiers. I'm professor of English and film at the University of North Florida. I was also a visiting scholar at National Central University in Taiwan at the Center for the Study of Sexualities in 2017. I've now published three books with the University of Minnesota Press. The first was Opacity and the Closet, Queer Tactics in Foucault, Bart, and Warhol from 2012, followed by Sexography, Sex Work in Documentary from 2017. And today I'll be talking about my new book, which came out in September of 2022, Cruisy, Sleepy, Melancholy, Sexual Disorientation in the Films of Tsai Ming-yang. Hi, my name is Beth Tsai. I am visiting assistant professor in East Asian Languages and Culture Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. My research focuses primarily on the cinema of Taiwan, film festivals, and transnational film theory. I have published in the International Journal of Asia-Pacific Studies, Quarterly Review of Film and Video, Journal of Asian Cinema, and Oxford Bibliographies. My first book is titled Taiwan New Cinema at Film Festivals, which will be out in April 2023 from Edinburgh University Press. So thanks for joining me, Beth. I wanted to use this podcast as an opportunity to talk about our new and forthcoming books, um, but also as a continuation of our collaboration, beginning when we first met at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies Conference, uh, with thanks to Xi'an Chow. I'm a great admirer of your definitive Oxford bibliography on Malaysian-born, Taiwan-based filmmaker Tsai Ming-yang, which is a, really an amazing resource on uh, scholarship and, on Tsai in Chinese, English, and French. Um, we also share a connection to National Central University. Um, so I really enjoyed collaborating with you uh, to co-chair a panel at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies on sleepy cinema, affect, audience, and embodiment, which also included Elena Gorfinkel and Jean Ma, whose work we both admire and we'll pro talk about probably about today as well. Uh, I want to use this opportunity, now that my book is published and yours is coming out soon, to continue our conversation on these themes. So that's how we'll be structuring this podcast, less as an interview and more like a conversation around keywords, our different approaches to transnational Taiwan cinema, and queer and feminist approaches to film. Well, I am really happy to be here, Nicholas, and thank you for all the kind words. And the admiration has been mutual ever since you published in Jump Cut and Census of Simina. Um, but I wanted to go back to the beginning, um, especially when we first met. I remember the first time that we met at SMS in Atlanta. You mentioned you were either working on or you were interested in exploring how Taemin and Li Kongshen, or nicknamed Xiao Kang's um, on-screen and off-screen relationship. And that relationship parallels the concept of the artist and the muse. And I remember I responded by saying, oh, I never thought of it that way. And even though from an auteur studies point of view, uh, we all know it's, it's common for an auteur like Truffaut or Wes Anderson to work with a steady group of actors. But I also think there's something more ambiguous, more intimate, codependency, if you will, between Tsai and Shao Kang's working relationship. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about how you came to write this book and your research process, if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Um, so the first person I really have to thank for introducing me to size films is uh, Michelle Stewart. 
Um, we both were at the University of Minnesota. I was in the Comparative Studies and Discourse and Society program for my PhD. I think probably Michelle recommended Size Films to me um, because she knew I had an interest in queer cinema uh, in Andy Warhol. Um, and we can talk about some parallels between Warhol and Sai uh, and uh, Camp. Um, so my first published work on Simon Yang was on Goodbye Dragon Inn. The, uh, that was in 2008 that I published an article in Jump Cut. And I really want to thank Julia Lesage and the late Chuck Kleinhans for that first opportunity. Uh, also, Senses of Cinema was an important uh, kind of early venue and, and also resource for me for thinking about size films. I also attended a queer diaspora conference at National Taiwan University, and the keynotes were by Fran Martin and Gayatri Gopinath, and they were uh, also really influential to my thinking about queer diaspora in, in size films. So I also, I met Earl Jackson in, uh, at a conference, the, the Asian Cinema Studies Society conference, and he has been so instrumental. I mean, really, this, he made my book possible by helping me make connections in uh, Taiwan. Um, he specifically introduced me to Josephine Ho and her colleagues in the Center for the Study of Sexualities at National Central University. And they wrote a Ministry of Science and Technology grant uh, uh, with the help of Amy Perry and Fifi Naifei Ding while I was on my sabbatical leave from, uh, from UNF. Um, so when I was at NCU, I just found this amazing community of scholars of queer theory and kind of transnational queerness. So while I was at NCU, uh, Ceiling Chung at the Chinese University of Hong Kong invited me to give a talk there, which was my opportunity to meet Song Hui Lim, who is the author of Timing Liang and a Cinema of Slowness. Uh, and his work is really influential to my to my thinking. And he was so wonderful. Uh, he sort of made me feel like I was part of this special club of admirers of Simon Yang. Like we have to stick together and support each other. And uh, so he he forged a connection between me and uh, Claude Wang at uh, Home Green Films. That was an opportunity to interview Simon Yang uh, at his studio in a long conversation with my NCU colleague Jonathan Ye, who was uh, also worked as our translator during that conversation. Um, and it was kind of a long form, like, you know, multiple hour conversation about queerness and space in size films. I'm just so grateful to the director for sharing his time and his insights in that conversation. But also while I was teaching at NCU, it was really helpful to hear the kind of local insights of my students and my colleagues. Uh, and that really helped my understanding of Taiwan cinema and size place in, in Taiwan. I've also been helped by international conferences to kind of share my work on, on queer Sinophone cinema, the Asian Cinema Studies Society Conference, where I met Earl, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies Conference, where we met. And also there's a conference in Malaysia called Gender and Sexuality Justice in Asia that was at Monash University in Kuala Lumpur, which allowed me to visit size filming locations and to travel to Kuching, his birthplace in Sarawak which uh, was really, I think, important to get a sense of where he grew up within the kind of ethnic Chinese community in this small town that uh, he's described as this kind of sleepy, sleepy town, and that that was part of his culture shock of moving to Taipei. When I was in Malaysia, I met with Saw Tiong Guan, uh, who's a director of a documentary called Past Present, in which he interviews Sai about his relationship to movie theaters growing up in Malaysia and his experience watching movies with his grandparents. And so that was also just a really important part of sort of understanding Sai's, Sai's background. But I didn't want to just write an auteur study as much as Sai thinks of himself as an auteur and as much as he's kind of modeled himself on a director like Truffaut. And as much as it seemed like it was a good occasion to publish an auteur study upon his announcement of his retirement from commercial filmmaking after he made Stray Dogs. But I also wanted to really contribute to work in queer theory on cinematic space, on cruising, on the idea of sexual disorientation, which is the subtitle to my, to my book, and on queer film phenomenology. What about you? How did this book project come to be? What was the process of research and, and revision? 
Well, I just first of all wanted to um, shout out to National Central University, and you were right, Nicholas, about our connection and, and mutual experience there. Because I did my undergraduate studies in English literature at NCU in Taiwan. So I also had so much fond memories of being on the campus and studying under the same colleagues that you had,、uh, Josephine Ho and Ding Naifei, and also、uh, Wen Qiling, which I am very much indebted to、um, their teachings and their guidance and their mentorship. But about my book, so the genesis of my book can be traced all the way back to a course that I took at NYU in 2011, which was a course on transnationalism. The professor who taught the course, Zhang Bongqiu, mentioned that if I wanted to work on Taiwan's national and cultural identity, the film festival is a platform and a battlefield for these kind of dialogues and cultural ne- negotiations、um, that I could work through and come through. He felt that at the time, not a lot of scholarship had been dedicated to this topic. So I wrote a term paper for this class, and then after his class, I had the opportunity to attend the European Film Cultures Conference in Lund, Sweden, where I was exposed to a group of film festival study scholars for the first time. But I've noticed then, which I will still say、uh, the same thing for now, is that most of the people doing film festival studies do adopt sociologist and anthropologist approach,、um, where they hang out at the festival site and observe the film festival as a research object. While the rest of them were more interested in uncovering or rediscovering archival documents. And they try to build collections, and maybe adding on to the resources if the institution lacked an archival practice. You would be surprised that a lot of film festivals actually do not keep their documents because their workers, their staffs, they're being shuffled every year, and they're nomadic in the sense that they don't always just work for one film festival. They may work for one and then travel to the other、um, because of a different timelines in in the year. These are what a lot of festival scholars were doing at the time, and I found myself and now and was inspired by these people. But I also felt like an outsider or an outlier in the sense that I was more interested in theorizing the political dimensions of films and filmmakers on the festival circuit. Without necessarily investing in quantitative research or adopt a historical method to uncovering or underdocumented side of these film festivals, and also it has a lot to do with、um, because I was trained in a critical theory, I felt slightly disqualified or maybe just reluctant. I feel uncertain to just simply ascribe. French theories, such as、um, French theorist Pierre Bourdieu's, to one of the hypotheses that I had, which is to look at the practice of programming and how the practice shaped taste and cultural hierarchy, reinforced by the international film festival system. I also want to mention, luckily, or I had the opportunity at another conference to meet Elena Polaki. A scholar, programmer, a really, really nice and fascinating person as well. She was a programmer for Chinese language film at the Venice International Film Festival, who basically confirmed that 
um, it was not feasible for me to find hard evidence to support the claim I wanted to make about programming and taste. And especially, neither would a programmer admit to their personal preference and political bias during the selection process. So this is all to say that this book ended up in the way it is now because, despite how much I would like to focus on just platform studies, my project is about how art house films were circulated and how Taiwanese filmmakers were received at film festivals. But also equally about their relationship with film festivals. So I feel like now would be a good time to segue into maybe reading a passage from both of our books, which I will. I wanted to read a passage from you, Nicholas,、uh, your book, which I'm holding in my hand. And I've mentioned to you this before that when you finish reading one person's book, it's always fascinating to go back to the introduction. It's like you now realize that everything was packed and spelled out in the introduction. It has always been there, but you also needed to finish entire book to to understand the narrative and how everything progressed. But I am just very fascinated by this paragraph in your introduction, which you wrote: "Cruzy, sleepy Malacani, sexual disorientation in the films of Taimilam." Shows how high expense and revises the notion of queerness by engaging with the local specificity and situated knowledge of the diasporic migrant, tourist, and otherwise displaced characters in his films, and their experiences of sexuality in Taiwan, Malaysia, and France. Thai's films are queer because they do not conceive of nationality. And sexuality as essentialized identities or sexual orientation, but rather help us understand queerness in forms of spatial, temporal, and sexual disorientation. Cruzy Sleepy Malacani engages queer film theory and approaches to queer diaspora, queer regionalism, and queer phenomenology to understand Thai's queering of space. Thai's films help us think spatially about queerness, including the queerness of crossing borders, the border crossings of the director, the characters within the films, and the films themselves. I love this passage because the way that you frame and situate timing now is not bound in sexual or national identity, but rather really an intervention at queerness, the queer phenomenology. And not just a queer identity, but also queering regionalism. So I guess if you could elaborate more about these keywords,、uh, drawing from your book's title, cruisy, or maybe cruising as well,、um, sleepy, and melancholy. And then when I look at melancholy, I also think about insomnia for some reason. So I wonder if you could just tell us more about these keywords. Thanks very much. So yeah, the the term cruisy.、Um, I've always really liked the term. You see it in kind of gay guides to navigating the sexual landscape of a city. But cruising, I think, is a really important queer spatial practice. So I was thinking some really key texts that I wanted to engage with、uh, are Samuel Delany's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue,、uh, where it's kind of a memoir but also theorization of the role played by、um, cruising and and queer and porn movie theaters. But also, there's a documentary about、uh, Samuel Delany that I published a review of in Jump Cut called "The Polymath," 
by Fred Barney Taylor. And um, that's a kind of documentary portrait of Delaney that also discusses this idea of navigating the sexual landscape of a city, including porn theaters and public toilets. Uh, Also, Jose Munoz's work in Cruising Utopia, he has a really um, wonderful chapter on what he calls the ghosts of public sex. And uh, also, I discovered John Paul Rico's book, The Logic of the Lure, which has some really important theorizing of uh, cruising and, um, and queerness. There's also a book by Alex Espinosa called Cruising, an Intimate History of a Radical Pastime that also, I think, has some really interesting insights about queerness as a spatial practice, but also a practice of kind of waiting and patience. So I was trying to frame cruisy also as an affect, not just as a practice of cruising, but also a kind of potential or erotic availability or openness. And I got that idea from Roland Barthes, uh, who wrote a preface to a book by Renaud Camus called Tricks. And I'm horrified to learn that Renaud Camus more recently has this kind of ethno-nationalist racist reputation. But I would say that Trix was just kind of a pretext for Bart to write a preface that was really his own way of thinking about cruising that generalizes the cruising experience for thinking about the reader and uh, the text, the reader's relationship to the text or the text cruising the reader, um, which was really helpful for me for thinking about Goodbye Dragon Inn, um, which is where I was first trying to work through this idea of the affective element of being cruisy or feeling cruisy. I also recently saw a a film by Elizabeth Purchill called Ask Anybody, which also has a really wonderful podcast that's all about cruisy gay spaces. It's kind of a mashup of gay adult film from the 60s through the 80s that really emphasizes the idea of gay spaces, uh, including public toilets and and movie theaters. And I recently had the opportunity to talk about Purchill's Ask Anybody at a conference on disorientation in uh, the University of Malaga in Spain. Uh, It was just exciting to have that opportunity to kind of think through sexual disorientation at a conference, specifically on the theme of disorientation. Onto the keyword of sleepy. Uh, Again, Roland Barthes is one of the major kind of inspirations here. His essay, Leaving the Movie Theater, where he talks about the experience leaving the theater feeling like his body is sleepy. And I know that that's a kind of common reference point for both of us. It's a really like productive and inspiring text. Uh, It's also true for, uh, for Jean Ma. So we had that SCMS panel that we co-chaired um, where we invited Elena Gorfinkel and Jean Ma. Um, I'm thinking Elena Gorfinkel has a really wonderful public lecture called Cinema the Soporific Between Exhaustion and Eros, and I know has, has published uh, other work on specifically the kind of exhausted body in art cinema. And then Jean Ma uh, was talking about her new book, At the Edges of Sleep, Moving Images and Somnolent Spectators. But also in terms of my own inspiration, I drew from Proust's opening to Swan's Way, the way that he theorizes sleepiness and disorientation. I also have a a faculty writing group at UNF um, with really wonderful colleagues that gave me feedback. And I was kind of pitching my book proposal and title. And I was thinking about, you know, cruisy, sleepy, melancholy. It has kind of a nice ring to it. And they teased me that it was kind of like the seven dwarfs with uh, sleepy as one of the dwarfs. So I do kind of, I feel like that might contribute to the way that the, the words work together in the title. And then the, the final term, melancholy, uh, and, I, and I like your connection to, to insomnia. Um, so again, I just wanted to start with kind of my reference points. Uh, Jean Ma's book, Melancholy Drift, Marking Time in Chinese Cinema, was very influential for thinking about Psy and melancholy. Uh, also, Jonathan Flatley's work on melancholia and modernism. And there's a, been a long-running current of thought in, in queer theory on melancholia and gender, sexuality, and the AIDS crisis. Judith Butler, Douglas Crimp, uh, Anne Svetkovich, uh, but also work on racial melancholy, uh, David Ung's work, and Anne and Lin Chung's work on racial melancholy. 
And the um, recently published book by Shayan Chow, Queer Representations in Chinese Language Film and the Cultural Landscape, thinks about gay melancholy within queer theory, but specifically in the Sinophone context in relationship to the heteronormative patriarchal family and that sense of kind of gay melancholy in relationship to those expectations. But in terms of the technical and clinical terms, melancholia and insomnia, I wanted to, to think about them in the kind of more vernacular sense. And it might be that because my background is studying Foucault, I'm a little bit skeptical of uh, clinical terminology and the wholesale adoption of clinical frameworks within queer theory because of the kind of medicalization of queerness. So I like Anne Svetkovich's work in A Depression, A Public Feeling, where she sometimes uses more vernacular terms like feeling bad. So melancholy is a kind of slightly more vernacular term. And I wanted to add to that really major and majorly theorized affect, these more minor affects like feeling cruisy and feeling sleepy. And sleepy is kind of a third term uh, between being awake and asleep. So that was kind of my approach of thinking about how do I bring melancholia down to a more vernacular sense of melancholy. And I don't spend too much time in the book on uh, making distinctions like melancholia and mourning in the, in the typically Freudian sense. But I was also kind of inspired by Sean Nye's work on uh, ugly feelings and minor affects um, when thinking about these affects. But then in terms of size films, the you know 10, 10 films that he's made, all with uh, Lee Kang-sheng as his muse, they often feature characters who are sleepy, who are insomniac, who are suffering from jet lag, uh, especially What Time Is It There focuses a lot on the, the experience of insomnia during also an experience of uh, melancholy and mourning. And then his film that he shot as part of the Walker series in Japan called No No Sleep, which is about a capsule hotel and characters kind of finding rest within this capsule hotel and sauna, which I talked about for our SCMS panel, and his film Stray Dogs, which focuses on a homeless family and their attempts to find somewhere to sleep. Uh, and there's a really amazing scene where Lee Kangsheng's character as this homeless father who's, he works basically holding a, um, a sandwich board for luxury real estate. He then sneaks into the luxury real estate for a nap. And I think it's one of the most amazing scenes in his films. I think this theme of rest and, and sleeping is, is something that once you notice it, it's, it's everywhere. So uh, I wanted to read a passage from your book, Beth. Um, I want to quote from the introduction where you're talking about the film festival. You say the film festival is approached as a theoretical framework, as well as an object of study, to analyze how new cinema directors, Ho Xiaoxian, Tsai Mingyang, and Midi Zi, specifically, became representatives of Taiwan once their films were circulated internationally. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of these as transnational, but also as representatives of new Taiwan cinema. And I was also really impressed by the feminist framework of your book, um, which you explain in the following quote. In situating Taiwan new cinema in the exhibition context, this book also takes a closer look at the productive roles women have played as discursive mediators of the cultural imaginary of the nation, the auteur, and the art of slow cinema. While the three primary case studies all focus on male directors, there is an unbending feminist caliber in the modes of production and feminist interventions that draw attention to who is writing the grand narrative of history. Well, I think we're going to have to come back to the larger framework of the film festival later in our conversation, because I just wanted to focus on women, the, the feminist approach and women critics and the flaneur for now. Also, I, I tend to answer questions with a story. I, I don't know why. Maybe that's just the way I, I think through things. And I'm a storyteller in a sense. 
And also, I I was really struck by one of the comments that I received when my book manuscript was undergoing peer review. That one of the reviewers said, "This is a feminist project." I guess it was obvious. It has been obvious in my writing, but I just didn't see it for some reason, or maybe it was so natural and was so naturally embedded in my writing that I just think too much about it as a woman scholar writing this project that I didn't reflect on on my own position or methodology. But the more I think about it, and I agree that, and I I had to explain it in the introduction that yes, it it is a feminist project that I I did take a feminist approach to it. So I'm going to start with the Flaneur because maybe some of、uh, the readers might potentially ask this question: is that I used the word the French word Flaneur, the masculine form, instead of the feminine form Flaneuse, which is the Correct form, supposedly, if I wanted to talk about women walking the city. But I'm going to start with my little story. Is that in the chapter three of my book, where I group two of Hou Xiaoxian's films, Le Voyage du Ballon Rouge and Café Lumière, because I wanted to talk about the transnational co-production and the transnational dimensions of these films. I presented an earlier version of this writing at a small one-off boutique conference called World Cinema and Television in French at the University of Cincinnati. I was surprised my paper was accepted because I have working knowledge of French, but nowhere near how these scholars were. If they're not native speakers of French, that I I feel very conscious about my insufficient knowledge of the language, but also the history and the culture. But they were very helpful, and the feedbacks I received were tremendously inspiring. One of the professors who attended the conference pointed out that there's a flaneur aspect in my work because I was focusing a lot on women walking around and exploring the cities. Meaning Tokyo and Paris in those films. Now looking back again, it was another obvious connection, but somehow I just didn't see it. And as any French or literary scholars would know, the flaneur is Charles Baudelaire's archetype of the modern man, the masculine figure who strolls through the metropolitan city with privilege and leisure. I said privilege because at the time, even in the late nineteenth century. Women can actually be on the streets alone at the time they have to have a companion with them. It is obvious that both protagonists in both films, Yoko and Songfang, they are walking around the city alone, leisurely, slowly, sometimes with a purpose, sometimes without.、Uh, but for me, I also think it's it's interesting that their figures are encapsulated by the reflections of the modern city, whether if it's a mirrored image on a train ride. Or Song Fang in the Voyage de Ballon Rouge, documenting the ubiquitous red balloon seen in Hou Xiaoxian's Francophone film, creating a rich mise en abyme. I didn't wanted to call in a flaneuse and thereby creating a separate feminine discourse because I think the discussion was already gendered, and、um, I didn't want to create a separate discourse to separate the practice in the sense that. The discussion has always been about how men get to walk in the public, but women own the private spheres. 
I wanted to intervene in that conception of, but these are also women walking in a city, and it doesn't matter whether if they're considered a flaneur or a flanist. Another reason for not adopting the feminine form of this French word is that I link this practice to film spectatorship, which is should be gender neutral to the ways in which a person walks around the city in a seemingly endless way, observing and perceiving the cityscape in everyday life. As Jenna Wolf has observed, the streets of the city are home to the flaneur because the city provides, and I quote. An asylum for the person on the margins of society. This kind of spectatorial pleasure, where one observes but rarely interact with others, specifically strangers, I consider is very much like the anonymity of the crowd in a darkened theater, which is an element in the workings of the cinematic apparatus. As you also quoted Roland Barthes, and I'm also quoting Roland Barthes here, that he has already. Poetically explain about the darkened theater and that relationship with a spectatorship. I also wanted to talk for a little bit about the chapter on women critics because I'm very much indebted to Christopher Luke's book on Hou Xiaoxian, especially his chapter on women's writing or Ecrecura Feminine, where he unpacks how screenwriter Zhu Tianwen, which I've also included in my book,、um, contributed to the understated gendered expressions in Hou Xiaoxian's films. Which is what he calls the sotto voce of female voice, and it's a female voice that subverts the patriarchal perspective and values in Hou Xiaoxian cinema. Emily Ye and Daryl Davis also talked about and wrote extensively on and covered Zhu Tianwen, screenwriter Zhu Tianwen's writings in their book, which was considered the first English book on Taiwan cinema. So I have to give them a shout out. But Christopher Luke's writing got me thinking, and as the second quote you've just mentioned, the question I have in my mind is who is writing the history here? And this goes back to one of the earlier feedbacks I received about my book was the concern that I didn't include a women director in my case study. My defense is that while there were women directors present during the time, but none really worked on Taiwan new cinema. They've created documentaries or they work on melodramas, but not in the new wave movement. And much like today, the women were present, but you would have more women screenwriters and producers working behind the scene in the movement than someone who's at the frontier of、um, like directors and cinematographers. So instead of being fixated on women directors, I wanted to take a marker approach to history and look at the labors behind directors, talents, and maybe cinematographers, and look at whose writing were shaping, or to borrow at least one of his films' title,、uh, to consider who were the pushing hands of the new wave movement, and that's how I ended up with a chapter on women critics. I really appreciate that about your approach to to women's labor as as screenwriters, as critics, as as actresses as well in in these films. So it was very noticeable to me reading this book that there is a a strong kind of feminist current, even if you do focus on on male directors. Okay, Nicholas.、Um, so now I wanted to transition to some of the common themes in both of our work. Of course, we overlap with. From my book, I have two chapters on timing now, but also I think space. 
is really a prominent theme that has a through line in both of our works. So I wonder if you could you elaborate on、um, you mentioned the keywords sexual disorientation in your introduction, and there's so much about queering the space and that connection to meta cinema. And what also picked up was I'm really interested in the phrases that you use, such as rented space and portable life. I'm curious if if you could elaborate more on these phrases. Thanks very much. Yeah, the idea of orientation in space is obviously a very important part of phenomenology. But I wanted to think about sexual spaces and queering space, and how to foreground the queerness of size films and the characters shifting or ambiguous sexual orientations in relationship to specific spaces. And I was thinking, you know, Sai is very famous for resisting the label "gay films" early on in his career.、Um, I think part of it is that he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a gay film festival director. And he's since given interviews about how he's really evolved on that, and the times have changed. But I think at the time he was worried that that would be the way that he'd be branded. But I was sort of interested in that resistance、um, to the label "gay films" and maybe the label "gay characters" for the characters that、uh, Xiao Kang plays. I was looking for examples of thinking beyond the kind of binary understanding of sexuality, and Michael Moon was the first person to coin the term sexual disorientation for thinking about what he called mimetic desire in films by Kenneth Anger and David Lynch, and the way in which those films also sexually disorient the viewer. So I wanted to kind of apply that what he says about Anger and, and Lynch's films to Sai's films, and thinking about his characters and the way in which Sai's films also. Tend to disorient audiences and critics、uh, who are looking for explicit kind of gay characters. Also, Sarah Ahmed revises Moon's idea of sexual disorientation in her book *Queer Phenomenology: Objects, Orientations, Others* by thinking about migration and space and queer relationships to home. I was thinking each of these is really interesting for thinking in terms of Sai's relationship to home or homelessness, in terms of his characters、uh, and their relationships to space and rented spaces. Especially in *Vive l'Amour*, there's really interesting relationships,、uh, kind of triangulated、uh, and sexually disoriented relationships among the characters and their occupation of this empty apartment. *I Don't Want to Sleep Alone* is also about a kind of sexually disorienting,、uh, caretaking relationship between these migrant characters in Malaysia. And *The Hole* also has, I think, a really interesting way of disorienting. The gendered expectations we have about these characters, known only as the man upstairs and the woman downstairs, during this kind of apocalyptic、uh, millennial、um, outbreak of a mysterious fictional disease. So I think each of those kind of queer space and queer the idea of home in, in really interesting ways.、Um, so I was thinking about queer relationships to domestic space. Uh, migrant experiences, you know, even Sai's own experience returning to Malaysia to make a film about migrants and comment obliquely on homophobia in Malaysian politics. So thinking about queering space and thinking kind of about queer tactics for using space, I was very much inspired by Delaney, as I've mentioned, his Times Square Red, Times Square Blue book and Rico's book on the logic of the lure, and I was also very、uh, inspired by. Michel de Certeau's work on distinguishing between tactics and strategies. I had originally used that in my first book on opacity in the closet for thinking about queer tactics, but I was largely focused on kind of linguistic tactics for outplaying or resisting the binary of、uh, closeted versus out. But of course, de Certeau is also talking about spatial practices, and he argues that strategies are really for those who possess. And own real estate, whereas tactics are the the tactics of the pedestrian. And going back to your discussion of kind of the the person walking in the city, 
Uh, in this book, I'm kind of returning to Sirteau's focus on spatial tactics by those who don't own property, um, which is really relevant to size frequently homeless or displaced characters and their use of urban spaces in the film. And in terms of the key word or the idea of rented space or, or living a portable life, um, in my conversation with Sai about No No Sleep, Jonathan Ye and I were really fascinated by his discussion of his experience in Japan and his observation that it seems like Japanese people in the city of Tokyo live a kind of portable life, um, that they travel without being able to settle. And you can see that in capsule hotels, in kind of public baths and saunas, and especially the ubiquitous phenomenon of internet cafes. So all of these themes, I think, come together in No No Sleep, and really all of size films carry this theme of rented space. I was thinking of real estate markets in Vive L'Amour and Stray Dogs, bathhouses in The River and other films, but also movie theaters and thinking about the movie theater as a rented space, which gets to the topic of meta cinema. You know, I teach film classes. I often start with examples of meta cinema. We watch Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window and other self-reflexive films, films about filmmaking and film viewing. I also teach horror film, and horror films are particularly self-reflexive. You can see that in Scream or Blair Witch Project or uh, Ringu, which I know you've also written about that, that film. So Goodbye Dragon Inn, that was kind of how I approached it as an example of meta-cinema, a film about the film viewing experience. But I also wanted to apply this idea of kind of meta-cinematic cruising to Goodbye Dragon Inn. And then Sai also made a, a film that was commissioned as part of the 60th anniversary of the Cannes Film Festival, a collection of, uh, of world cinema directors who made three-minute films about the movie theater called Chacun Son Cinema. Sai's film was called It's a Dream, and it's set in a, a movie theater in Malaysia. And I use it in my preface to my book as a kind of microcosm, an encapsulation of Sai's motifs for thinking about our relationship to the movie theater. And it's a somewhat kind of melancholy relationship that he has to movie theaters, um, which is also explored in Sao Tiangwan's documentary on Sai's relationship to movie theaters in Malaysia, past, present. And in that film, he interviews Apichat Pong, Wira Setakul, and uh, Chen Chanti, Sai's actor, about the role of cinematic space and the space of the movie theater in all of Sai's films. And they express their kind of admiration for the poetics of space and the way that space speaks in a film like Goodbye Dragon Man. I love that you mentioned Tsai's uh, admiration for the poetic use of space, um, but the way that you just describe and the way that you use orientation and disorientation to think through space is also very poetic in the sense that you unpack so much, so many unfolded meanings um, just through one word and disorienting of directions in, in that sense that I just find it really fascinating. And I realized that we, we do approach the notion of space, albeit a, a different, mine would be a slightly different approach, or I'm thinking again through maybe more of a, a macro framework and in, in looking at and using transnational as a framework, which I didn't have a chance to uh, respond to that. So yeah, if you could talk about that, the, the way that you've organized your chapters in terms of these, um, these movements and cardinal directions of going east, going west, and uh, the southbound turn. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I think through transnationalism is through movements. I, I think by looking at movements, by tracing the routes and the roots of these movements, help me understand and think through the transnational theory. And the reason why I picked those filmmakers, uh, Ho Xiaoxian, Tsai Liang, and Mi Dizi, who to some they wouldn't necessarily consider or at first glance think that he belongs to the Taiwan New Cinema Movement, but I would consider him as a second wave or, or a continuation of the second wave because he, his work came so much later. 
But I chose these individual filmmakers as a case study um, in Frankman in terms of cardinal directions of East, West, and South. Because if we go back to thinking about how transnationalism ten years ago was really a new buzzword to counter the outdated view of Emmanuel Wallerstein's world system theory, and scholars were unsatisfied with globalization theory and wanted to shift their attention to not just look at the uneven process between the East and West, the uneven process of globalization and its consequences. They looked toward transnationalism as a response to the concept and recognized. Regionalization as a new possibility for a reimagined new world order. I was trying to wrap my head around these thoughts and and discussions, but also on the ground level, I am inspired by Edward Said's traveling theory and James Clifford's traveling cultures. So traveling is also a theme that I'm trying to use to unpack transnationalism. With that together. Comes with the concept of mobility or movement, and on a literal meaning, travel is a form of movement. But figuratively, movement can also refer to a change of directions, a change of course, and can be referred to the origins and the different stages of the new cinema or new wave movement, as my book title indicates. So I begin these travels with Ho Xiaoxian going east, not only because Cafe Lumiere,、um, a film that was commissioned by Shoshiko Studio, they invited Ho Xiaoxian to pay homage to、uh, the Japanese master Yasujiro Ozu, but also this film、um, embodies and is an allegorical to the colonial relationship between Taiwan and imperialist Japan. But I also noticed the Easternization of Ho's. Only Francophone film *Le Voyage du Ballon Rouge* with Song Fang, one of the characters in in the film, which goes by her real name, Song Fang.、Um, she is seen remaking Albert Lamoury's *Le Ballon Rouge*, and through the way that Ho Xiaoxian also incorporated Taiwanese puppetry and music in his films. And then moving on to Taimilian, I label Taimilian's work with the Westbound framework, not just because of his often confessed love for the French New Wave, epitomized by Jean-Pierre Lyot, who now appears in two of his films, but also many of the European funds, film festivals, and, and museum fundings that have supported Taimilian's filmmaking career throughout. And he also recently. Did a U.S. tour and had his last stop was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which he felt he very proud to be included as part of the conversation with the museum practice. And MoMA was also the second museum that purchased his thirty-five millimeter print of Visage. Um, and the Louvre Museum was the first to commission, and also the proud collector of this film with its 35 millimeter print. And then, lastly, with MediaZ,、uh, Myanmar-born director is self-bound, both in light of、um, of thinking in light of Taiwan's self-bound policy, referring to how the, the Southeast Asian and Chinese diaspora members migrate to Taiwan、um, because. That experience and that opportunity potentially offer a spatial but also social mobility for these people, for these Chinese diasporas. 
as well as the marginalization of Midizi's ethnic minority, despite his film work representing Taiwan as a whole. Some reviewers and some film professionals don't necessarily consider Midi as representative of, of Taiwan cinema, simply for the fact that he wasn't born in Taiwan. He was born in Myanmar, which marginalized him and segregated him to more of a Southeast Asian identity. And in my writing, I wanted to challenge this misconception. Thanks very much. And that's an interesting connection between Simon Yang and Midizi is that that sense of being questioned in terms of do you belong, do you represent Taiwan? And so I think that they end up thematizing that in their in their films. Well, now, Nicholas, I wanted to ask you about objects because I see and I'm just excited about how not only those objects were repeatedly used in Taimi Nell's works throughout his filmography, but also these objects kept reappearing in your chapters as well. And it also becomes another through line that stretches your arguments and your theories together in such a, a beautiful way. There are many, many objects, but I'm particularly fascinated by you mentioning mattress or white underwear, as we often see Shao Kang wears on, on screen, um, toilet, which you also mentioned earlier in one of your answers. So yeah, I made the index to my book. And I was noticing that I was, you know, I probably didn't need to do this, but I exhaustively cataloged these motifs and recurring objects in size films. Probably because I think that's one of the things that makes him so interesting is he's always recurring to these specific motifs. But in terms of the mattress, I actually had a student at NCU, one of my graduate students, Martina Nye, who encouraged me to think more about mattresses in his work, but also as this kind of place of sleep and eroticism. And I was really struck, actually, when I went to the Museum of the National Taipei University of Education where Tsai uh, had his stray dogs at the museum installation, that when you go to the, the museum cafe, there's a video projection of a mattress um, from one of Tsai's experimental pieces. The mattress recurs quite a bit, but especially in I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, it's almost like a, a character within the film. And in terms of underwear, the idea of characters being shown when they're alone, I think, is something that, that ties together a lot of Tsai's films, that the kind of emphasis on lonely characters in these kind of private and intimate moments when they're alone in underwear, definitely in Rebels of the Neon God and in Vive L'Amour, there's a lot of emphasis on that kind of solitary life. And I think Xiao Kang's character is in his underwear for all of the whole as well in his apartment. It does remind me actually a little bit, uh, I just recently screened for my class, the Wong Kar Wai film Chungking Express, in which Tony Lung's character also spends a lot of the time alone uh, in his underwear. So I don't know if this is maybe a connection between the two directors. But it poses the question of public and private, which is also why toilets are a motif, uh, because they also kind of raise this question of the public and private. And um, Fran Martin talks a little bit about this in her introduction to the Journal of Chinese Cinemas. Uh, there's a, a special issue of that journal in which there were a number of contributions on Simon Yang. And her introduction is called Simon Yang's Intimate Public Worlds, which I think is such a smart way of thinking about this director as the way his films capture intimacy and intimate moments, but are also about the dividing line between public and private uh, in his work. I want to ask you, Beth, about the role of festival films in your book and also the documentation. You have these beautiful illustrations of installation views of size Walker films. So thinking about expanded cinema uh, in relationship to the physical space. And then another object that I think you foreground is the red balloon in Ho Xia Xian's The Voyage to Bama Rouge. 
Yeah, so here's also another story again. Um, when I defended my doctoral dissertation, uh, one of my mentors, Professor Liz Monteguri, she commented that she really liked my project because one of the main strats of my approach in film festival studies was following the money trail. Again, I didn't think about it until she pointed out. So by this, she means that my approach reflects one of the core understanding of cultural studies, which is to stress both the cultural, but also the material fabric of society. At the same time, uh, and point to the economic factors of societal transformation. And as media studies and culture studies often are often greatly invested in material culture and object studies, the way I approached objects in my book took on a literal but also a figurative form. So you pointed out the insulation views, which it's still exhibiting. But when I visit the site, the Dune, uh, for Taimanon's Walker Series exhibition, at the time the gallery was supposed to rotate an artist every three years. I don't know. Is it because they couldn't since the pandemic they couldn't find the next artist, or they just negotiate a deal? So the exhibition was supposed to end in 2021, and I visited in 2020 just before the pandemic. But now I, I believe it's still showing. But it was really fascinating with a, a time announcement installation at that particular site. He did had other exhibitions in, in museums like the Palace Museum. Uh, where he also brought mattresses. So again, mattresses are one of his recurring objects. Vintage CRT TVs and old theater seats in, into the exhibition. Later on, with other works, he also brought in tree branches, recycled paper, sand, and water, and which is the one that I took, I documented, and I took photos of, and I shared in the book. These are the material objects, the the feasible objects that we see. There's also the red balloon, which I didn't think of it as an object at first because it's such an iconic cinematic symbol that many associates with the French cinema, Le Balloon Rouge, as we talked about. And the visual symbol is referenced everywhere. Not mentioned in the book, but I was thinking one of the Simpsons episodes even features the baby happily darting around with a red balloon. And that episode was a French quote unquote gift from her brother Bart. And in my book, in the context of Taiwan cinema, a floating red balloon symbolized the journey Hou Xiaoxian took to travel to France to make his first known Chinese language film. Again, a film commissioned by Museum du Orsay. And then lastly, we could also think about way to approach festival film as an object because many of Taimilian and also Hou Xiaoxian as well, their films were funded by museums or film festival funding. So this type of festival film is emblematic of how film festivals, as cultural institutions, exercise their material power. So they are concrete and tangible, but they're also not tangible in the sense that we're we're looking at them as film exhibitions or or films that are being circulated at these platforms and being viewed by、um, the audience. So in a way that it is an object, but it's also I approach it as a figurative form as well. It's such an important insight, I think, in your book, the idea of film festivals as producers. 
I think we tend to think of festivals as just venues, or I do. Uh, and so I think that's a really important approach to think about the film festival as a producer of work like these commissioned films. So let's also talk about aesthetics in both of our books, because camp is also a really important keyword, both in terms of thinking about the aesthetics, but you also consider it more as sensibility and affect and your writing. So I wonder if you could maybe elaborate on how you think through the keyword camp and the way that you use it. And what if it also carries different meanings in translation pertaining to the Taiwanese academic context, because they're different and there's also a separate discourses of how they think through this foreign word, this English word, camp. Yeah, and it also, I'm glad you mentioned the the cultural studies approach to uh, material culture, because I think that camp is a really interesting way of approaching material culture. So my undergraduate thesis actually at Bard College in the late 90s was on camp and queer culture. And uh, it corresponded with a revival of interest in camp within queer theory in the 90s. And there's been a more recently another revival of interest thanks to the Met Gala camp theme and the exhibit uh, Camp Notes on Fashion at the Met. So when I was writing this um, thesis at Bard, I shared queer theorists' frustration with Susan Sontag's notes on camp, which has some really useful definitions, but it's also startlingly quick to disavow connections between camp sensibility and gay culture. Um, I think part of that has to do with Sontag's investment with the idea of taste and making distinctions between naive and deliberate camp, which I think is um, sort of a dead end. I, in general, prefer Esther Newton's work on camp in gay and drag queen culture as a way of, as she says, laughing instead of crying at one's incongruous position in straight society as a queer person. There's also a wonderful phrase from Richard Dyer, which is, it's being so camp as keeps us going. I prefer Newton and Dyer for acknowledging the centrality of camp as a practice to queer culture. And I was also very interested in learning about my NCU colleague, Jonathan Ye's Mandarin translation of camp as ganpu, meaning uh, dare to expose. In 2017, when I was in Taiwan, the theme of the Taipei International Queer Film Festival was actually queer, kuar, and ganpu, camp. And uh, using those translations and with a really memorable live drag show by local drag queens during a, a screening of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is also a kind of interesting, again, this 90s film getting revived in a more contemporary moment. I also read Camping Out with Simon Young, the Emily, uh, Emily Ye and uh, Daryl Williams Davis, where they emphasized Tsai's aestheticization of working class culture and his approach to appropriating Grace Chang musicals in his films in relationship to the Taiwanese dialect term song, meaning tacky. So Xi'an Chao has also written a really comprehensive chapter of his book about Tsai musicals and camp, also drawing from these sources and translations of camp in English, Chinese, and Taiwanese. So when I returned from Taiwan, I co-chaired a panel at SCMS with John Paul Stadler, and it was on the theme of queering pornography, where I presented an early draft of my chapter on camp and porn musicals in size The Wayward Cloud. And I just wanted to say that kind of shout out to the SCMS Adult Film History Scholarly Interest Group to be such a wonderful, supportive community of scholars that's made me think that pornography is something that we should write about and think about. Uh, it's really worthy of study, despite the risks in the academy um, due to you know, assaults on academic freedom and freedom of speech right now. So I wanted to kind of work through in that chapter the differences of critical opinion on whether a size film is anti-porn or the idea of camp reception 
and affective incongruousness inherent in this tragic comic tone of a lot of size films and um, the kind of humor to be found in camp and drag and queer fandom. So it was particularly helpful, I think, to work through those in that venue. Well, I, I love these connections that you have just presented and, and thinking through how you connect camp beyond just aesthetics, but also to other elements and also genres like porn musicals and music. I'm thinking this is also out of self-interest because I'm also invested in the word recycle or recycling as a verb. And so I'm wondering if you could also talk about how you use the word recycling or how you think through this idea of recycling in, in its abstract sense. So, um, I mean, pornography and old musicals are kind of thought of as cultural refuse and trash. And uh, Sai has also given a lot of interviews about his approach to recycling, um, sometimes literally recycling objects like theater chairs, as you mentioned, in his installation pieces, in the installation versions of uh, It's a Dream, and in the recycling of trees and paper at the Stray Dogs at the Museum, um, in these kind of expanded cinema installations. So recycling is a practice that Sai is really dedicated to. You can also see his approach to recycling materials in his approach to old Mandarin pop songs. And I was thinking about it using Eve Sedgwick's idea of uh, camp as a form of reparative reading in the sense of it's an attachment to things that are seen as outmoded or old fashioned, but uh, size really effectively invested in them. Right at the end of the whole, there's that line at the turn of the millennium in this kind of bleak future, at least we have Christ Chang's songs to comfort us. Um, so I think that there's a strong sense of reparative reading and a lot of size approach to outmoded forms. By contrast, I was actually wondering, since you emphasize newness in the new Taiwan cinema, um, if you could talk about the aesthetics of newness, but also the aesthetics of slowness, the idea of slow cinema as one of the defining features of um, this new wave cinema. Yeah, I just wanted to first insert comment that when you're mentioning Grace Chang, um, I was thinking the way Tai uses her songs and the way they're being embedded or, or lip synced, especially in the whole forever changes the way that I, I approach the song or how I listen to the song. Because in my last class uh, on Monday, the, the class I just gave, I show a clip, which is the Singapore street food scene in Crazy Rich Asian. And before leading to that particular scene where basically a foot pour in that sense, they also use the song uh, from Grace Chin. And immediately I was thinking, oh, the camp aesthetics and, and there's, you know, the added layers to viewing a film that's considered a romantic comedy that I just feel like you cannot sing it without looking from Time Nails' work, the lenses of Time Nails' work. I agree. But then coming back to how I use the word newness and slowness as well, that new, I call it a newness, or they may not necessarily be new in a sense, but the quality or the way that they're being framed as new, but there's a continuation of these practices and the lineage that we can pick up. And then especially thinking how cinema studies are often always on the lookout for newness from the shocking sensation that came with the cinema of attraction and also vernacular modernism of early cinema, that they're always writing about this new technology, this new shock, this new sensation, this new experience. And if it's not that new sensation, then they're looking at the new directions and posts for filmmaking, such as the French New Wave, Italian Neorealism, New German Cinema, 
third cinema. There's a lot of new in the titles as well. So you could say that world cinema has always been built upon the premise worth mentioning because of the fresh perspectives these group of filmmakers could bring and how they incite new ideas. Films were made for a different, a new kind of audience, and they wanted their films to be perceived differently. And also the critical theories that may generate the type of films that were produced. And new cinema certainly fits this framework. And fits the dialogue, but I also wanted to argue that、uh, Taiwanese cinema has attracted so much attention not simply because these films, with their modernist and socialist, social realism dimensions, were necessarily newer compared to more of a previous romanticizing Chinese identity in the previous films, and also that the filmmakers did take on a new direction in their storytelling and their subject matter. But these films. They're not as new as what the Western scholars would perceive, because they also you can see the traces of all these films drew lineage from their predecessors,、um, especially of the natives' concerns in in Taiyuan, the realist aesthetics and and healthy realism. There is a continuation of that, despite the healthy realism at their best attempt trying to reinvent or reinterpret it. Italian neorealism in their way, but these films favored by the nationalists, produced in studios with big budgets, color films, stars, celebrities. They were very far from how film scholars would characterize Italian neorealism. But then it's interesting to see how Taiwan neo cinema fits the description and also creates a dialogue with、um, its predecessors. For slowness,、um, I address the notion of slowness、um, as both as a discourse, but also as a critical lens, because for many this is a lens that is essential to understand works by Taimian, Hou Xiaoxian, and Midizi. And of course, the concept of slowness at first glance it's, it's so much of an aesthetic inquiry, as Song Huiling has pointed out. But he also pointed out, and Song Huiling pointed out in his book. Taimian in the cinema of slowness. That the slowness is also a lifestyle. It's not just aesthetics, but it's also response and resistance to the fast-paced life exacerbated by capitalism. So I borrow this idea, but I also use slow and extend that idea of slowness to to describe the way that there is a delay response for some Taiwanese scholars to appreciate. To recognize and even to accept the qualities of new cinema, which at the time for some of them were antagonistic towards this movement, this emergence of a new group of filmmakers. And I think the way this delayed response for the scholars is also in tune with how Frank Martin and I believe you also mentioned her name,、uh, Frank Martin characterized a post-colonial relations or a temporal disjuncture. Albeit it's it's a transforming one. So even though there was a delayed response, that they were not stuck in that time capsule or stuck in that delayedness, the time lag, as she calls it,、uh, between Taiwan and European modernism. So this was one of the ways that I also use slowness in, in my book. Yeah, I think Fran Martin's idea of post-colonial time lag is really interesting to connect as you do with the idea of slow cinema. 
Yeah, now I wanted to ask you the questions about tactics and queer tactics. In the introduction, I mentioned that when we first met and you talk about this potential book project, I didn't know if it was a project at the time, but I'm fascinated by the way that you characterize Tammy Liang's relationship with Shao Kang. Um, that that there is an admiration, there's obsession of, with the body, if you will, but there's also a genuine and very firm, grounded friendship. I don't know if they still, but there's also cohabitation between these two that they live together for for quite a while. So I wonder if you could tell us more about that. Sure.、Um, I was thinking of the long filmed conversation. It's kind of a retrospective conversation with Li Kangsheng called "Afternoon"、um, that he made after completing "Stray Dogs,"、uh, and it's almost like an exit interview about their relationship of making films together and living together. And I was thinking of Michel Foucault's interview "Friendship as a Way of Life." Which is also about the possibilities of friendship outside of kind of institutional and heteronormative family, and also my my friend Tom Roach's book of the same title, "Friendship as a Way of Life," but also Roland Barthes' course at the Collège de France, "How to Live Together," and specifically his discussion of idiorhythmy, the idea of thinking about how to respect someone's pace of living. And I think that that's a really an important lesson that Sai learned in his interactions with Lee as a non-professional actor. And Song Wei Lim talks about this in his book. A kind of evolving approach to slow cinema actually emerged out of Sai learning how to respect Lee's slow style of acting, and that strongly impacted his approach to kind of filming daily life and、uh, his approach to slow cinema. And their conversation in Afternoon,、uh, Li Kangsheng and and Simon Yang, reminds me a lot of a Roland Barthes' discussion of the kind of dynamic between the lover and the beloved,、uh, even though it's not necessarily a romantic relationship. The way that Bart understands the idea of the kind of maternal relationship in love,、um, and there's a lot of moments in Afternoon where they joke about, you know, Simon Yang is like his mother. They keep switching these kind of kinship roles of father son, mother son, and artist muse, employer employee, and friend, and you know, confidant, etc. So I was thinking that a lover's discourse was actually worth revisiting for thinking about this queer kinship between them. Again, as the sort of strange phrase of artist and male muse, he's often referred to as as size male muse. But I liked thinking about it in in also this kind of maternal term and thinking about the value of queer kinship within the cinephone context.、Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the、um, conclusion to your book,、uh, which talks about the idea of hyphenated people. Yeah, that would be my tactics, <laughs> and it also came very late at、um, the stage of writing that I wasn't thinking about this term. I mentioned it briefly in the introduction. I sort of just tabled it and never revisited until one of a again peer reviewer pointed out that it didn't feel like there is a closure <laughs> for my writing. So I decided to put myself in the story and talk about my hyphenated identity.、Um, but I first came across this word while reading Rachel's writing diaspora tactics of intervention and contemporary culture studies. It was a very fleeting moment. Actually, it wasn't one of more obvious keywords that she structures her arguments around. But I just picked up this detail because I was fascinated by it. And that she was recounting、uh, one of her friends' reaction to a 1986 film called *A Great Wall* by Peter Wang. And then her friend said, "Quote: Real people are hyphenated people." I've always and forever curious what does this person mean by real people, but I pick up on the word hyphenated people. I was struck by it, not just the simplicity of it. 
and thinking and reflecting of how my own identity, whether if I consider as myself a Taiwanese or Taiwanese American or Asian American, and also thinking about how another culture, another ethnic practices, such as the Hispanic practice of having two surnames, we may not all be hyphenated people, but a lot of us are hyphenated. So if Rachel coined the term hyphenated people to counter Orientalism, essentialism, or particularism, and even geographical determinism in East Asian culture studies, I think the the hyphen can do a lot more and invites questions that are not just about identity politics, as I've been trying to search for the meanings behind it, but also. It can be used toward thinking about the intersection of gender, of queerness, as you've done so so brilliantly in your book, migration, mobility,、uh, border crossing, which is the main discussion threads in my book, and of international funds and transnational players. I also consider them as hyphens in 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 the sense how they commission and produce and present world cinema. So the invisible hyphen. Is a way to connect to the diasporic and migrant experiences, but also to the economic forces that drive those transnational networks. After all, if you look at a film festival, you think of、um, the cosmopolitan congregation of people, of cultural exchanges, opportunities for these kind of exchange. But at the same time, it also speaks to how these films are being circulated, and lastly, how the industry can capitalize. On these events and these exchanges and the congregation of people, so two things that keep coming up that we haven't discussed yet. One is about time because we touch upon slowness, we touch upon different time zones, but we haven't had a chance to to fully elaborate on it. And the other thing, building off time, for me, I think I would also think about the word of frustration or feeling frustrated when watching Timmy Mao's films or watching any slow cinema in general, which applies to Ho Xiaoxian or some of these East films. So, what do you think about this concept of time and frustration, and how how do you use that in in your book? I'm curious. So a lot of the published work on Sai is about time.、Uh, Sam Huilin's book, also Jean Ma's Marking Time, and you know that this is kind of running thread as we've been discussing of slow cinema or Gilles Deleuze's、uh, Cinema Two, the Time Image, which I've also found helpful for thinking about Ho Xiaoxian's films and Sai Mingyang. But I like the term time zone for thinking about Sai's films, especially his Sino-French films.、Um, what time is it there? And Visage,、um, as discussed by Michelle Bloom, and as you also talk about in your book, I think the time zone makes us think about time and space together, feeling both temporally and spatially disoriented when you're considering what time zone someone else is in. And again, responding to Fran Martin's work on what time is it there, and what she calls post-colonial time lag in that essay, The European Undead. But I really I found this concept of the time zone to be really helpful because it shows how you have to think about time and space together. You can't really disentangle them. And then in terms of frustration of the viewing experience of slow cinema, you know, I, I screen size films in my classes. I know that slow cinema where nothing happens sometimes frustrates、uh, audiences that are more familiar with the pacing of Hollywood films. But I'm interested in the more productive aspects of frustration and boredom. 
Roland Barthes in The Pleasure of the Text juxtaposes what he calls text of pleasure, which grant satisfaction and feel culturally familiar, with what he calls texts of bliss or jouissance, which can involve a sense of a loss of self, a loss of one's bearings. Um, and he suggests that boredom is not far from bliss. Uh, I think his phrase is, it's bliss seen from the shores of pleasure. Um, but I think that the concept of a text of bliss is really helpful for thinking about the productive aspects of frustration or or even boredom in watching size films, especially in Goodbye Dragon Inn, thinking about the, the spectator's experience of watching that film or watching other people watch another film, in that case, the film King Who's Dragon Inn, which is much more of a kind of text of pleasure. It's a recognizable genre film that is sort of iconic of uh, Taiwan cinema and also memorable from size childhood. But I think, you know, queer theory and affect theory are so helpful because they help us think about difficulty, experiences of difficulty and frustration of our expectations. We maybe have expectations about sexuality in cinema that are frustrated, productively frustrated by size films, or expectations about the sexuality of his characters that I think the concept of sexual disorientation helps us think about the productivity of that frustration, the productivity of the feeling of being disoriented. Yeah, I can definitely relate to your teaching experience about how you worry that the students might feel frustrated and you spend a lot of time just really programming the framework and also these different aesthetics practices just in case that they might want to walk out of the screening. And luckily, I think once you explain it quite well, they do look up to you and they're respectful in the sense that I have not had a student who walked out of my screenings. But I was thinking that frustration, I definitely agree. For me, it has twofold meanings when, when I use it to characterize Taiwanese cinema as well, because they could go a different way that on the one hand, yes, there's also the, the common frustration that's associated with the slowness, um, as you mentioned. Nothing happens, the, the pace is slow. But I also think how, you know, for example, the ending scene at Edward Young's The Terrorizer also offers a different kind of frustration that's not slow cinema. But it's, it's, it's a film that has multiple storylines that come together at some point. This is a film that you have a fiction writer, a woman who struggles to write her next book or her next project. And you also have a different character happening in a different space, a photographer who falls in love with a mysterious woman. And this woman somehow becomes a catalyst for everything that goes wrong in the film especially how she disrupts and breaks up the couples, two couples in the film. So the film frustrates the viewers, especially the ending, because I, I call it, it has a very Louis Bunuel-esque kind of a surrealist puncture that leaves the audience wondering whether the tragic ending is a reality or it's someone else dreaming about it. I don't want it to spoil the film, but the ending is quite obscure in a sense. So I think frustration is such a great word to think through these work, but also connects both of our writing because we're both trying to argue and advocate for this kind of frustration as a necessity that's essential to appreciating and understanding the filmmakers that we've undergone such a close reading. And especially, it also says so much about how even with a frustration, this kind of sentiments can bring us closer or even intimate with their work, which is something that you pointed out um, is a form of pleasure. That boredom can also be intimate and provide bodily ple pleasure in that sense. So my last question for you, Nicholas, would be, 
what is the next project that you're working on now that your third book is already out? I imagine you're already planning for your fourth book. Yes. So um, I've conceived of a, the next book length project, um, which is tentatively titled Inter-Asia Network Films and Cosmopolitan Sex Workers, that kind of returns to some of the themes of my uh, previous book, Sexography, but also thinking about the kind of network of migrant characters um, explored in my book on, on Simon Yang. So I'm looking at a complex 21st century cycle of East and Southeast Asian films that employ network narratives, so films with several protagonists and distinct but intermingling storylines, to represent the lives of sex workers in East Asia networks of migration and labor and commerce. I'm hoping that analyzing these cross-cultural encounters in these East and Southeast Asian network films will offer a timely challenge to the dominance of the trafficking framework, the belief that all sex workers are victims of trafficking, while also accounting for the narrative dominance and global cinematic appeal of that framework. And my hope is to return to Taiwan, uh, ideally to National Central University, to the Center for the Study of Sexualities, to work on um, three chapters that I've conceived. Number one is on Simon Yang's queer Teddy Award-winning post-retirement film, Days, from 2020, that's set in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Thailand, and uh, features sex work as, I think, a form of care work for uh, Li Kangsheng, who has this the same neck affliction um, that he suffered from in uh, The River, that I incorporated into The River. The second film is The Receptionist from 2016, which is a UK Taiwanese diasporic filmmaker Jenny Liu's work on diasporic Chinese and Taiwanese women working in an illegal brothel in London. And it stars uh, Tsai's actors Chen Chiangqi, and it ends in uh, Kaohsiung in Taiwan. And there's that sort of sense of diasporic longing throughout her work. And then number three, Li Kangsheng, Tsai's actor, is in a film called Come and Go. He plays a, a Taiwanese sex tourist in that film from 2020. It's by Japan-based Malaysian director Lim Kawai, and uh, it's a portrait of converging Asian migrant stories in the Umeda district of Osaka, which challenges the ethnically homogenous image of contemporary Japan. And I'm hoping that based on the previous books, I'm kind of uniquely situated to intervene in an intersectional analysis of inter-Asia cinema studies, films about underrepresented sex workers, migration, and the idea of cosmopolitanism in the 21st century. And so since your book is coming out this spring, I'm wondering if you could talk about the audience that you hope to reach with your book. Well, the first group of people, I think, obviously, would be those who already closely follow Taiwan cinema. I wanted to emphasize Taiwan and separate that from the shelf of Chinese language films because a lot of times the studies or films from Taiwan are often filed under non-Western cinema, Asian cinema, or, or Chinese cinema. So I hope that by accentuating Taiwan in the title, I could also accentuate the importance of doing Taiwan studies by ways of looking at Taiwan's uh, peculiarities. And I don't just mean the focus should be on Taiwan-China tensions and thereby by separating Taiwan from Chinese language cinema. But also, it's equally important to look at the cultural politics of Taiwan, how Taiwan intersects with colonial legacies and globalization and, and displaced migrant workers, especially how the relationship Taiwan has with uh, Southeast Asian countries and how all of these factors contributed to the distinct Taiwanese cultural identity. But I also think that my book can speak to a wide array of um, disciplines outside of Asian studies. As I'm currently housed in the Department of Asian Studies. I believe the theoretical discussions on film festivals and the cinema viewing experience 
and also on the topics of sleep and installations could easily spark interest from students and scholars from cinema studies, media studies, arts and art history, comparative literature, and communication programs. But then lastly, while academic books tend to have a steady audience with、um, existing interest in, in the subject matter, I genuinely hope that my book can appeal to a broader audience beyond the academic community. And contribute to public knowledge about Taiwan and, and drive more interest in, in Taiwan studies. That would be the goal of of my book. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm I'm sure that it will、um, reach those audiences. And and it's been such a pleasure to to read your work and to talk with you. Likewise. <laughs> I hope that we can continue to collaborate.、Uh, especially, I mentioned before Sai's、uh, announcement of his retirement, at least his retirement from making commercial films. But obviously, he's been very productive since that retirement, making a feature-length film, Days, and the Walker series. So,、um, so I hope that we can keep collaborating on this kind of post-retirement era of Simon Yang's filmmaking. Absolutely, and looking forward to it. Thanks very much. This has been a University of Minnesota Press production. The book "Cruisy Sleepy Melancholy: Sexual Disorientation in the Films of Simon Yang" by Nicholas De Villiers. Is available from University of Minnesota Press. The book Taiwan New Cinema at Film Festivals by Beth Sai publishes in April 2023 with Edinburgh University Press. Thank you for listening.